Father, we do praise you for your son Jesus, our wonderful Savior who died for our sins. We praise you for your love for us, uh, demonstrated and poured out in sending him for us. And Father, thank you that because of the forgiveness of sins, we can boldly come before your throne. We can worship you and in spirit and in truth. And we thank you for the privilege we have to do so. And Father, I pray as we come to your word that you would work that which is pleasing in our hearts, that and pleasing in your heart, Lord God, in our hearts, that we would respond, Lord God, to what you have to say, and, and we would grow and become more and more like your son Jesus. Bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, one of the realities for most men and a lot of women these days is that we have to work. Indeed, after the fall, the Lord made it clear to Adam that he would work by the sweat of his brow until he went into the grave. Work is the reality for most people. Now, unfortunately for some Christians, that's about as far as it gets when involving God in the workplace. They go to work, they come home, uh, don't like my job, get another job, don't like my boss, complain, get another job, Uh, don't like to work, don't work. We seem to be very independent when it comes to work. Yet how are we to be as workers in Christ? How are we to be? Well, today we're going to continue our preparation for 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 15, by looking at what we are to be as workers in Christ at the, in the book of Titus. Would you turn into Titus chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10, where we're going to see sound doctrine for sound living. Now let me share the context of Titus. For those of you who don't remember it, we did go through it a few years ago. But uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to his ch- true child in the faith, his trusted companion, Titus. And the Apostle Paul has indicated in chapter 1 that he has left him behind in Crete to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. Indeed, Titus was left behind in the Mediterranean island of Crete and given instruction concerning leadership in the church, and he was to appoint elders. And they were not just to be any men. These men were to be those who met the Christ-like qualifications laid out by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, godly men who would hold fast the faithful word that they may be able to exhort and refute those who contradict. And then later on in chapter 1, Paul gives a picture of those contradictors that these godly elders should be uh, exhorting and refuting. And refuting. We see that uh, they are those who were teaching things they should not teach. Uh, They were upsetting whole households. They must be silenced. And then God reveals that they were worthless, disobedient men holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from God's perspective, Paul reveals that they are worthless for any good deed. And then the Apostle Paul moves from that point to share sound doctrine for sound living and actually how we do walk in the context of the good deeds that God has laid out for us. Indeed, in chapter 2, he introduces what believers are to be and why. And he tells Titus to speak things that are fitting only for sound or healthy doctrine. 
He gives instructions concerning older men, older women, younger women and younger men, and bond slaves, how they and we are to be in Christ. And within that, he shares the reasoning how anyone can do any of these commands. He explains that. And it's important to know that all the commands in chapter 2 going down to verse 10 are based on what happens in verses 11 to 14. You see, you can't do what God calls you to do unless you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The reality is the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer is open to all men. And God's grace in Christ is instructing us right now to say no to sin and ungodliness, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who gave himself to redeem us, redeem our lives from the pit and to purify us, that we would be his possession, zealous for good works. So with that in mind, what are we to be as workers in Christ? Turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 9. And we'll begin there. Now as we look at this, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the mandate for workers, then the manner in which they are to do so, and then the motivation and the impact of such. Verse 9, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, as we come to this issue of bond slaves, we need to share some preliminary issues concerning slavery and work. You see, you have to ask the question, why commands for slaves and masters? Why not just tell masters to set the slaves free and slaves to run away? Why commands? We have to address that. One pastor writes, Jesus never condemned nor approved slavery directly. The New Testament doesn't condemn or approve it as an institution. Why? He writes, here is something the world just doesn't get. Jesus Christ didn't come to directly change human institutions. And he goes on to say, he never marched against tyranny tyranny and slavery and all those things and campaigns against social ills. The reality is Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to redeem hearts that lives will be changed, not to fix society from the outside, but from the inside. Indeed, when Jesus was before Pilate, uh, Jesus answered him and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. The reality is, we serve Christ. He's the king. And his kingdom is not of this world, and thus ours is not either. Now, we see in the reality, in Scripture, the reality that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And although God is not reforming society from the outside, he is redeeming hearts from the inside, and that will have an effect on society, at least temporarily. Now, by God's grace and his uh, providence, we may or may not at times have enjoyed the blessings that he bestows by allowing godly men to be raised up into leadership positions. But we must remember there will and there, there will, there was and there will be times in which God, within his sovereign desire, 
will allow oppression and persecution for his disciplinary and redemptive purposes, where he will turn the evil of Satan and mankind into good. So concerning slavery now in the first century, slavery is not the same as we think of it here in America. It was an economic reality in the Roman Empire. The whole Roman Empire was based on slavery. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, from laborers to very skilled doctors. And the reasons people were enslaved at that time were through acquisition by war, kidnapping. However, that was on the decrease at this time when this was written. And by the first century, most people were born into slavery. Now, because of God's grace and his providence, this American republic, by and large, from its founding, was moving toward a time where slavery would be eliminated. And we do not have it anymore in this country, and praise the Lord. And so how does this passage apply to us then? How does it apply to us? You know, interestingly enough, but not perfectly, the slave-master relationship of the first century as written here mirrors our 21st century employee-employer relationship. For indeed, employees are enslaved to their, their works and their bosses for 8 to 12 hours per day. And so the principles apply to us in the work relationship because we are under the authority of our bosses while we are working. So with that in mind, what does God have to say about work now? What does he have to say about work? Well, man has always worked. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were given the responsibility of taking care of God's creation. There was work. And it wasn't until the fall of man, when Adam rebelled against God, that work became what we know of it today. Genesis chapter 3 reveals this reality. Genesis 3.17, after the fall, Adam sinned. Then he said to then to Adam he said God speaking to Adam because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field by sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust, and you, and to dust you shall return. Work is a consequence of the fall, at least the type of work that we understand right now. We have no understanding of what Adam was like before the fall, but we certainly do now after the fall. You see, we see that men, it is the man in the context of marriage, man in the context of marriage, that is to work. Indeed, God addressed Adam and cursed the ground, and he would tell. He did not say, Eve, by the sweat of your brow, this is going to happen. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Now, this leads to the obvious and extremely controversial question, what does Scripture have to say concerning women in the workforce? Well, not much. In Acts chapter 16, Lydia was described as a seller of purple fabrics, and there is no hint of condemnation there. Indeed, I see no biblical restriction for unmarried women or married women without children or grown children from working. Yet remember this, in the marriage relationship, it is not the woman's responsibility to provide for the family, although the husband may have a wife who helps him in that. And we'll see some qualifications. 
First Timothy chapter five. But if anyone does not provide for his masculine, his own, provide for his own, what does he say? Especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a pretty strong language. Men, you are responsible in the marriage relationship to provide for your household. It is not the woman's responsibility, but the man. But although there may be times where where children are grown, uh, they may help their husbands. Certainly we see the Proverbs 31 woman doing supplemental work, but not rejecting her family, as we'll see. Now concerning women with children... What does scripture say concerning work? Titus chapter 2, just a little bit before what we are studying. Go back a little bit. This is really clear. This is really clear. There is no room for discussion or argumentation about this. It's just straightforward, and God says it through his word. Here we go. Titus 2, 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage The young women to what? Love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, that's that's sofranizo, having a right-mindedness, their thoughts correct, pure, and what does that say? Workers at where? Home. That's what it says. Kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. For widows who are young, they were encouraged to remarry, actually, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And keep house, by the way. Not remarry and go out and and, uh, work in the workforce. The implication is with kids here. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, 1 Timothy 5, 14, keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to serve Satan. So this is very unpopular in our society these days, but scripture is clear. Women with children are to keep house and raise their children. This is their God-ordained and blessed role. Now within that, there can be some supplementary things. You've seen that in Proverbs 31, but the primary responsibility is to raise the children. Anything else would be sin. Now, unfortunately, there might be some excruciating circumstances where a woman with children might need to work away from her children. Say the death of a spouse, abandonment, or consequences of personal sin, which have been forgiven. In those cases, we need to pray for them, come alongside, help them, that they would eventually get back to being with their children as God-ordained. Now, Scripture also reveals some other reasons why men are to work. And so we come to this, is these principles that we'll see, they have to do with slaves, which were male and female. They will apply to men and women in the workplace, whether it's single women in the workplace, single men in the workplace, uh, women who have grown children, whatever it might be. Now, there are some other things that Scripture reveals uh, concerning uh, the reasons why we are to work. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and this is what we'll be studying, Lord willing, next week, and this is what we're preparing for. And so we're just going to walk through it really quickly. And by the way, on a side note, work is good, by the way. God ordained it, it's good. There is profit in labor, it is a blessing, it is a blessing that God allows, even though it is a, a difficult thing. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother that leads an unruly life. That means he's not working, by the way. That's what it's saying. Um, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. It's going to explain. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. There you go. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden on any of you. We work so that we're not a burden on the body of Christ, that we would provide for our own. And he said here, not because we don't have the right. He was an apostle. They didn't have to, but they did his example, by the way. Uh, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, and they were only there three weeks, he says here, we were with you. Uh, we used to give you this order. This is a command, a charge, by the way. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. That's pretty straightforward. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all. He says here, but acting like busybodies. That's not good. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. And he says here, says, but for, as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. That means addressing these issues, by the way, and it it's, can be wearying, by the way. And if anyone does not obey our instruction this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And those are the two issues that we've been preparing for. One is work and one is discipline in the body of Christ. That's why we looked at Matthew 18 last week. So then, man is to work, and our passage makes it clear that they should work. And one of the reasons besides that is that they would not be an undue burden on the body of Christ. It's love. It's love, right? There's another reason in Scripture why men are to work and why we are to work. Ephesians chapter 4.28, I'll read it for you. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, that's work, performing with his hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who is in need. God has us work also so that we'd be able to share with those who are in need. Okay? So then, are you lazy? Get to work. Are you working? Remember, part of why you're working is to share with those in need and to provide for your own family and to be obedient to the Lord in terms of what he's called us to do. So with that in mind, thinking of work, what are workers to be in Christ? Let's take a look. Again, turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 9 and 10. And let me read this. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Now, there's a lot in Scripture about work, by the way. We're going to be going between these passages, so you may put a bookmark in there, your fingers will be ready to turn there. But we're going to be looking at Ephesians 6 also, and Colossians chapter 3, and there's also in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll see in 1 Timothy chapter 6. There's a lot of information in Scripture about work. 
So then, now let me ask another question. Is this passage here specifically and in its direct context only addressing men? Well, no, because in the Roman Empire, a slave could be male or female. So these will apply to both, and especially in the work relationship for those women who are working and not disobeying God in another area of their lives. And so here, although I praise God we do not have slavery anymore, the reality is we have a similar institution for a, for a momentary amount during the day. So let's take a look at the mandate, and we're going to see that servants are commanded to submit and obey their masters in everything. We need to remember this. This is really important, because everything we're going to see is a reflection of our relationship with Christ, whether we do it or not. And it will reflect well on him in the, in the doctrine of the truth of Christ, or it will reflect badly. So it's very important that we listen. Verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. Now, again, I've already shared the passages that we'll look at in Colossians and Ephesians and 1 Timothy and 1 Peter 2. And we're going to see that there's the commands in all of these. Now, in these passages, with the exception of 1 Peter, which speaks of a domestic servant, they all use the same word, bond slave, which means servant. A bond slave spoke of someone who has uh, given over their will to their master, whether willingly or unwillingly, okay? And so here we have the idea of slaves or bond slaves. Doulos is the word. Doulos is the word. And in the NASB, you notice the term urge is in italics. And in the New King James, they have exhort in italics. The passage could be literally spoken this way, bond slaves to their own masters to be subject in everything. And now they are adding in the idea of urge or, or urge or, or, or uh, in a sense, uh, um, like the New King James says, exhort because of verse 6. They're carrying that down in the Greek. And I think that's reasonable. So then we have the term bond slave, doulos, one who's given up their will voluntarily or forced to take the will of a master. And so he's talking about slaves in the context of slave-master relationship in the Roman Empire. And we can glean from that for our work relationships. You see, all scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for what? For teaching, for correction, or or for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so God has given us everything we need for life and God, including the work relationships which we have today. So he says here, to their own masters, to be subject in everything. And, you know, we're going to get a little insight into the slave-master relationship, and it is much like our work relationship, because the commanders will see us say, don't be argumentative. Well, if this was a, a, you know, a whipping slave relationship, no slave would be arguing, right? This means there was interaction between the master and slave, like there could be in a work relationship, okay? We're going to see that. So he says here, to their own masters, to be subject in everything. They are to be subject the term subject is hupotasso. It's a Greek word. Hupo means under. Tasso means to order, arrange, or appoint. It speaks of lining oneself up under someone. It would speak of soldiers submitting to their superior officers. Lining oneself up under authority that is above you. Lining oneself under the authority that is above you. It speaks of position and not personhood. 
It speaks of position and not personhood. Now that's key to the idea of submission. And key to that is the idea of authority. Submission and authority go hand in hand. We need to remember that. Authority and submission, they go hand in hand. Because indeed, biblical submission is ordering oneself, lining oneself up under in subjection to God and his authority as he is ordained in the world we live. And so it is lining up oneself. And we have uh, the servant-master relationship, obviously mirroring the work relationship where there's authority. But there are other relationships in Scripture that include submission, and they all do. Titus chapter 3, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, 13. We have submission to governing authorities. Same thing. Titus chapter 2, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 18, 1 Peter 3. God, God calls upon women to be subject to their husbands and respectful. 1 Peter 5, 5. Peter makes it clear that young men are to submit to their elders. And indeed the church is to be in submission to Christ, Ephesians chapter 5 the head of the church. And folks, we are all to submit to God, James 4, 7. And then in our passage, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 2, we have submission of slaves to their masters. Now these days in our society, because our churches become so worldly, submission is a dirty word. It's a dirty word in many churches. And why is this? Because biblical submission is in contradiction to our fleshly lusts. It is in absolute opposition. Absolute opposition. And if you are in the flesh, you will oppose the reality of submission that God reveals in his word. You see, lack of submission and pride and arrogance go hand in hand. As we're going to see, submission goes hand in hand with humility. Humility. Let me share a few examples about that. Uh, look at uh, James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 6. And this is in the context of uh, functioning in the world's wisdom, earthly, natural, demonic, and the behavior that comes from it, causing conflicts, difficulties, all those things, uh, and the being a friend with the world and, and all that is in that context. And the solution is to confess and humble yourself before the Lord and submit to God because you haven't been submitting before. And that's really what we see here. James 4, 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. God's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble, so submit to him. You see, when you're not submitting, you are walking in pride. What do we see in First uh, Peter chapter 5? Younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud. Right? Submission and humility go hand in hand, and a lack of submission and pride go hand in hand. It's just the way it is. So then, we see that we are to submit. Back to our passage. Urge bond slaves to sub be subject to their own masters in everything. It's a present tense. To be continually, habitually submissive. Continually, habitually. Now, not only are uh, slaves to be submissive, uh, in, as we see in our passage in First Peter 2, they're also to be obedient. 
obedience. Look at some passages here. We're going to show you. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Not only submission, but obedience. But obedience. Ephesians 6, 5. And we're going to see that when we, when we obey God's word in relationship to the work relationship, we're going to adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. It's going to be beautified. Christ is going to be beautified. The truth concerning the Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, same word, bond slaves, be obedient. Pretty straightforward. To those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as to Christ. What about Colossians 3.22? And you can go there, but I'll read it, but we're going to go back and forth, so you might want to keep your finger in Colossians. Slaves, for chapter 3.22, in all things obey those who are your earth, masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, this term to be obedient in both those passages, hupa, hupakuo, akuo means to hear, hup means to go under. You're listening under, you're listening to obey. You're going to submit to what you hear. You're going to place yourself under the command. That's what obeying does. When someone says, you know, when, when your dad, your mom tells your kids, please take out the trash. You submit, you place your, your, yourself under the command and you go do it. That's obedience. Hupakuo. So then, we see that servants are to obey. Now, who are they subjected to? Notice we read there, to your masters according to the flesh, Ephesians 6, 5, uh, Colossians 3.32, 3.22, excuse me, those who are your masters on earth and on our passage to their own masters. It's pretty straightforward. They're to submit to those who are their masters according to the flesh, their masters on earth. Pretty straightforward. Now, what areas are slaves to be subject to their masters? Now, obviously, in any situation, we are never to sin, okay? We know that, right? We know that. Um, that's when we say no, when, we're, when we're, we respectfully and, and honorably try to have a different outcome. Maybe I could do this instead. You see what I'm saying? You, 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 you try to negotiate like, like Daniel with his superiors. But we are to obey our masters in what? What does our passage say? Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters what? In everything. Everything. That covers it all. That covers it all. So then when we are working, we are to be obeying the commands of our superiors and we are to be submissive and obedient in all things. Are you listening to your masters in the flesh with the intent of obeying what they say? Now we're going to see it's ultimately because you're obeying Christ. We're going to see it. You've got to understand that. If your boss asks you to do it and you don't do it, then what is that? It's sin. It's sin. Because God says we're to obey in everything, right? Okay? It's very clear. We've got to know that. We've got to know that. We can have all kinds of reasons why we say, no, we shouldn't do it. But if we don't do it, we're sinning. And pride has taken hold of our hearts because we're no longer submitting. So then... The areas are to be subject in everything. 
Well, what if it's a bad master? My boss is so bad, he's unreasonable. I'm not going to do that. It's an unreasonable request. Well, what are we to do? What are we to do? First Peter chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. There's the answer. There's the answer. And in First Peter, it's so that your submission to God through your master would be a redemptive opportunity, would be like Christ. The suffering that Christ suffered for brought about redemption. And when we suffer for Christ doing what is right, it brings about redemptive opportunities. And we've got to think of the things above, not the things of earth. So then, let me ask you, are you subject and submissive and obedient in every area at your work? This is the mandate for slaves, and I believe it applies to employees very clearly here. So then, we are to submit. But how do we do it? Do we grit our teeth and order ourselves under our unreasonable bosses? What do we do? What do we do? What manner should we relate to our masters? Notice we are to be respectful, well-pleasing to men as we serve Christ from the heart. That's what we're to be doing. Look at our passage. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything. And notice this. To be well-pleasing. Now, the structure here is important. The term well-pleasing is, is, is a verb. And then we have three participles. Not argumentative, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So the well-pleasing is described in those three things. Okay? So we are to be well-pleasing. The term well-pleasing in Greek, you arrest us. You means good or well. Arestros means pleasing, desirable, acceptable. Well-pleasing. We're to be well-pleasing. Continually, habitually. It's in in a present tense. Now, in the New Testament, it's very interesting that the usage of this word, all nine usages, every time apart from here speaks of being well-pleasing to God. And it speaks of that as the goal of our lives, to be pleasing to God. And here it speaks of being well-pleasing to our bosses or our masters. But ultimately, we're going to see it being well-pleasing to God because he is sovereign. We're working for him. We're working for him. So then we serve Christ and not man. And when we are well-pleasing to our earthly masters, we are well-pleasing to him. We want to be well-pleasing. We want to please the Lord. That should be our desire, right? That should be our heart. We should be offering ourselves to God as, as a well-pleasing sacrifice, a holy, with the holy living, trusting Christ that brings glory to him. Romans chapter 12, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, that's our word, well-pleasing, uh, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we do at the word, so we're well-pleasing at work, by the way. And he says here uh, that you may prove what or demonstrate what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable or well-pleasing, well-pleasing and perfect. Second Corinthians 5, 9, therefore we have this as our ambition, whether at home, in our bodies, or absent with the Lord, to be well-pleasing to him. That's my ambition, be well-pleasing. Philippians chapter 4, it speaks of a sacrifice that is well-pleasing, the the gift that the Philippians gave to Paul. 
Philippians 4.18, but I have received everything in full. I have abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received everything from Epaphroditus. What you have sent, it was a gift, a fragrant offering, an acceptable or sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Well-pleasing. Let me ask you this. Are you well-pleasing at work to your bosses? And to God, are you well-pleasing? Now, they may be not, they may not receive what you do in Christ. They may mock you for it. They may slander you for it. But, but is what you're doing well-pleasing? So then, we're to be well-pleasing and we're desired to be acceptable all the time. So Paul shares these commands right after submission. I submit to God and I'm going to be well-pleasing. I want to be well-pleasing. So let me ask you this, those who are working, are you well-pleasing to your bosses? If not, in a sense, now there could be other, just a sinful attitudes towards you, that's not talking about that, but is your, is your, are your actions well-pleasing? Are they well-pleasing? And not just to good masters, but to those who may be unreasonable. Now I mentioned already that we have now a description of what well-pleasing is. We have three specific applications to the slave relationship, but also the work relationship, where we might be tempted to not be well-pleasing. Okay, And they help us understand those temptations so that we will not go that way. And if we do, we confess it quickly. Notice what he says, the first participle, not argumentative. Now here, this gives us, as I mentioned earlier, insight into the Roman slave-master relationship. If there was room to argue with your master, it's kind of like our work relationship now. They have authority. I could get fired. Consequences could happen. But they, there was, could be arguing, or it wouldn't be said here, right? The term argumentative here in Greek is anti-lego. Anti, over and against, opposite, lego means to say. It means to say against, to speak against, to speak in opposition, to object, to contradict, to argue. We see it earlier in chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of the false teachers who contradict. Anti-lego, sound doctrine, teaching things they should not teach. It speaks of verbal opposition. This is in no way well-pleasing to your masters and thus to Christ. It is never pleasing to your master or to your Lord and Savior Jesus when you argue with your boss or those in authority over you. Don't argue with those in authority over you. It is not well-pleasing. It doesn't mean there might not be room for a conversation within the respect and honor and fear, certainly. But we are not to argue Do you want to be well-pleasing to your boss? Submit to him or her. Do not argue with them. Don't argue with them. And usually that argument comes when they tell you something to do and you don't want to do it that way or whatever it is, right? It's usually where it comes. Now let me just share one caveat at this point. It is not speaking of false disingenuous disingenuous, uh, attitudes of like an Eddie Haskell attitude where you're saying all these things in their face, but underneath there's a rotten core, okay? Not speaking of that at all. You see, Ephesians 6, 5 says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service or as man pleasers, by doing things where they see you, but underneath there's corruptness, there's sin. But it's the slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Colossians 3.22, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men. 
It's not simply a, a phony lack of argumentation that's external. It's from the heart where we obey the Lord. It's not sucking it down and on the inside you want to scream at them, but you're saying, yes, sir. It's not what it's saying. It should be from the heart. You see, if you want to be well-pleasing, you're not going to be argumentative with your bosses or those in authority over you. Well, how else? What else do we see here? That's where the master's around. But notice we have some commands for when the master is not around, okay? Look at our passage. Irresponsibility is to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing. And here's the first uh, participle, not argumentative. And then not pilfering. Pilfering. The term translated pilfering here, nos fidzo, fidzo, speaks of holding back or misappropriating, stealing, or embezzling. It's the term used in Acts chapter 5 and verses 2 and 3 alone where we see the story, the true story of Ananias and Sapphira where they held back a portion secretly of the price and they, that they had sold of the land and supposedly had done it all for the Lord. Acts chapter 5. Interestingly enough, it's also used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, concerning the things taken or held back by Achan. By Achan. So certainly we have the biblical examples of Ananias and Sapphira and Achan. You don't want to be holding back money from God. That's a serious consequence, right? That's, that's that. But the word speaks of holding back, taking something that's not yours in secret for your own advantage. In secret for your own advantage. Indeed, some people in wickedness enact revenge on their employers by taking stuff. They enact revenge. They don't like their boss. They take things or whatever it might be in secret. Don't take from your boss stuff that doesn't belong to you unless you have permission or the freedom to do so. Otherwise, you're pilfering. You're stealing. Whether it's pens, pencils, papers, extra trip in the company car that no one knows about, it doesn't matter. You're stealing or pilfering. Now, some of you might not recognize this, but when you come late, leave early from work without your boss's permission or without him seeing, in secret, you're hiding it. That's the same thing. Now, certainly, bosses, there is permission and understanding and guidelines for your employment, and sometimes you can come late, go early, whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the secret disobedience of the rules that they don't see. This is not well-pleasing. It is not, as we will see, of good faith. So what do you like at work when your boss is not around? Okay? I hope you're still well-pleasing. It's well-pleasing. So then slaves or employees are to be submissive to their own masters or employers, as we'll see, and to be well-pleasing uh, as exhibited by a lack of arguing in their presence and by righteous behavior when the boss is not around. Okay? And that means you're going to have to go against the, the, the tide because... Guess what? The workplace is a great place for complaining and arguing because that's what everybody without Christ does all day long when the boss is not around, right? You're going to have to go against that and remember the word of God and ask Christ to help you respond rightly and to get away from those things. So then what do you like when the boss is not around? Are you well-pleasing? Well, notice there's a third one. I believe it's summed up in this statement here. That's all this stuff summed up. It says, uh, not argumentative, not pilfering, 
but showing all good faith. What does that mean? You are to show all good faith. The term showing means demonstrating, giving outward proof, giving ample evidence. And then the term good faith, all good faith, speaks of literally faithfulness or trustworthiness. You are demonstrating trustworthiness and faithfulness. That is well-pleasing to the boss and to the Lord. When you are a faithful, trustworthy employee, and it is evident, they can see it. They can see it. You do what what they say, you do what you say, you're faithful, you're trustworthy. You are to give ample evidence that you are trustworthy. And indeed, faithfulness and trustworthiness are at the heart of being a good servant, by the way. Think about this. The Apostle Paul shares this in relationship to his stewardship as a servant of Christ regarding the Word of God. Notice what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So when they're around, you're not arguing with them. When they're not around, you're not messing with them. And when in the entire time you're showing yourself to be faithful and trustworthy. What an employee you would be if that was the case. If Christ was doing that through you, which you're supposed to, man, you're going to be adorning, as we'll see, the doctrine of your Savior because you're going to be way different than everybody else that's not saved. Trustworthy. Let me ask you this right now. Are you a faithful, trustworthy worker? Maybe you got fired because you weren't faithful and trustworthy. Confess it and be faithful and trustworthy. Be faithful and trustworthy. Demonstrate, manifest all good faith or trustworthiness. And that only happens if you're abiding in Christ while you're working. It only happens if you're thinking of him and serving him rather than them. He's the ultimate one you serve. It's Christ Jesus. And when that's the case, it raises the ante in in our attitudes and actions at our work relationships in place. So then in relation to our earthly master, we're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Turn to to 1 Peter chapter 2. We have one other attitude as we see that we should have towards towards our earthly masters. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters, what? With all respect. The term respect comes from the Greek word phobos. It means to fear. It speaks of respect in this context, and it's modified by the term all. Be submissive with all respect. With respect. You should be honoring and respecting your masters, whether good or bad, because God has placed you in that circumstance, in that position, with all respect. Let me ask you this. Do you respect those who are in authority over you? You see this in all ordered relationships, whether it's marriage or whether it's with the Lord, whatever it is. You see it in all of them, by the way. These principles cross over in every one. You see, if God has placed uh, you in authority, or actually, as we'll see in a minute, placed you under the authority of someone else, We are to do so with all respect. Now, it's interesting, on a side note, I know God has placed me in authority as an elder over some, and and by and large, everyone is pretty respectful. 
But unfortunately, there's been times where when people disagree with something, that's where the disrespect comes out, by the way. But guess what? In your work relationship, you're probably going to disagree with your boss a lot. It doesn't mean you don't respect them with all respect. With all respect. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, and not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. All respect. Honor. Respect them, because God has placed you in that circumstance. We're so independent, we go out and get this job or that job, we think of our career, we didn't involve God in it at all, so then we just change whenever we want. But if God is sovereign over your life, and you've involved him, and he has led you to where you are, which he has, then you respect those who are your bosses. Well, what do we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6? Turn there. A lot of instruction, isn't there? There is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of what? All honor. That's quite an interesting statement. This is the slave-master relationship. How much more for a work relationship? How much more? Of all honor. It says here uh, that so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. You see, if you don't honor your employer, your boss, uh, they're going to speak against Christ because you're a Christian. They're worthy of all honor. God has placed them in temporary authority over you. When you respect and honor them, regardless how you treat them, you're actually respecting and honoring God's authority. You're honoring God in that context. And this has to come from the heart. Again, it's no phony baloney, outward, heady, haskell respect. It's respect that comes from a right view of your boss because God has put him in that place, and God is the one ultimately whom, as we'll see, you serve. So then, how do you treat those in authority over you? Let me ask you an important question. Where's your heart towards them? Where's your heart towards them? Do you see yourself as serving Christ and that God has placed these non-believers or believers over you for the moment and that they are worthy of all respect and honor? This is what workers are to be. So now, in the immediate context, we see uh, Titus speaks of the earthly relationship of masters, but how are we to act uh, in relationship to God? Obviously, this is our reaction to our earthly masters, but how, where's our heart to be in relationship to him underneath all of this? The scripture is very clear about this. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We need to recognize that we are to serve our heavenly master from the heart. This is really important, because if you don't do this, everything we've just read will not happen or it'll be hypocrisy. Okay? Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Notice the, the difference. On earth, that's where it is. Not with external service, as with those who merely place men, but notice this, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That's the key. We're going to see it's Christ Jesus whom we serve at work. It's Jesus whom we're serving through that person. And we've got to get that solid in our hearts and minds. It's Jesus. He says here, fearing the Lord with sincerity of heart. The term sincerity means singleness. It means undivided, unmixed. You can't serve two masters, by the way. Right? Sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Again, a parallel passage, Ephesians chapter 6, we see this also in Ephesians chapter 6. Slaves, be obedient to your, those of your masters on earth with fear and trembling, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. Phobos and traumas. We see we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to get to the point where we are, it's a, it's a traumatic thing to us to disobey God. Fear and trembling. We're to do everything unto him. Our gracious, wonderful Lord who gave himself for us, who will enable us to do everything, who will never leave us or forsake us, who loves us, who will enable us, give us the strength to do everything he calls us to do, who will reward us as we will see for everything we do on this earth in him. You see, the world has no fear of God before their, before their eyes. And when we were not saved, we just winged it. We did what we wanted ultimately as man-pleasers, self-pleasers, whatever it was. Now we do everything unto him. That's what we're doing at work. And we're going to see it's eternal. There's eternal consequences for our behavior right now. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Verse 23, it's cautious. Do it heartily as for the Lord rather than men. That's really it. Whatever you do, that includes everything. And I think about that, even the little tasks I do that I don't have a master in, but I have to do whatever. I'm doing, I'm doing this for you, Lord. I'm doing this for you. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Now, the word heartily means out of the soul. Out of the soul. You could literally translate it this way. Out of the soul, be working. From the inside unto the Lord in your work. As for the Lord rather than men, everything you do, everything, do your work hardly as for the Lord rather than men. Have you failed? Have you become lazy? Have you become disrespectful? Have you been a man pleaser? Confess and be forgiven and do your work hardly unto the Lord. From your soul, from the, from the core of your being, you're serving Jesus when you go to work. You're serving him. Now, the scripture also talks about masters, which I would really, would, would, would also go along with employers. You can look at that in Colossians 4.1 and Ephesians 6. Talks about masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing you have a master in heaven. Ephesians 6, and masters do the same things to them, give up threatening and knowing both you have a master in heaven. You're, you're their master and yours in heaven. There's no partiality with him, speaking of your master in heaven. So then we've seen the mandate also for uh, a slave's employees obey. We've seen the manner in which we're to do so unto Christ, uh, desiring uh, to be well-pleasing to them and ultimately him, right? And functioning rightly. And then notice we see some motivation for why, and we'll finish up with this. Look at Colossians 3 again, verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, Knowing something, you know something. If you understand this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ you serve. And then he explains, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. Wow, not many people talk about that, do they? That explains a lot for a lot of things in a lot of people's lives, by the way. But he goes on, and that without partiality. So then, we know that the Lord will reward us. 
you know, you get a paycheck, whatever it is, and that's a blessing. But that's not your reward. That's your pay in a sense. God is going to reward you for what you do in Christ. And you got to know that when you are doing it unto him with a bad boss, good boss, whatever it is, the Lord's going to reward you. The Lord's because it's Christ whom you serve. Ultimately, it's Christ. When you serve your boss, you're serving Jesus. You're serving Jesus. Knowing that it's from the Lord, you will see the reward. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7, With good will render service as to the Lord, not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. God is gracious. He is a God who rewards you for what you do in his son. He's gracious. You've got to know, you've got to think of the eternal realities. And there's consequences for sin. There's consequences for being a bad employee, by the way. There's consequences for causing God's word and his name to be defamed, by the way. The Lord will reward you for everything you've done in his strength. Think of the eternal realities. Serve Jesus from the soul heartily. Now, as we finish, I want to share one last motivation here, um, which should be in terms of our love for the Lord. We, anyone you love, you don't want them to be damaged or demeaned, right? If you love someone, you don't want them to be spoken against, and you don't want that to come from you, right? And so notice the last motivation in our passage back in Titus. Let me read through. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And here we go that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. This word adorn, cosmeo, it's where we get our word cosmetics. It speaks of beautifying, adorning, causing something to be seen as beautiful. What's he saying here? When you are a godly slave or employee, submitting to your master, well-pleasing, faithful, then the teaching or truth concerning God, our Savior, is adorned. It's made beautiful. You see, everybody wants to run out with the signs and say, repent, repent, trust Jesus. But the Lord is using the everyday situations in our lives when we abide in him to bring beauty to the truth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That God, our Savior, the doctrine of God, our Savior, would be adorned. And what's that doctrine? We saw it earlier. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live righteously, uprightly in this present age, right? Looking for the blessed hope and return of our glorious great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, right? To redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's the doctrine of God, our Savior. Because the next verse says four, and it says what I just shared. You see, when you're saved by grace, we were saved from the penalty of sin, and right now God is delivering us from the power of sin and ultimately will be completely delivered from the presence of sin. And if you're a believer, your boss probably knows about it. And if you're not a godly employee, then the doctrine concerning our Savior Jesus is going to be what? Spoken against. It's not going to be adorned. First Timothy chapter 6 again. Let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of our God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. 
If you're obedient, submissive from the heart to the Lord and thus to your master on earth, while pleasing, exhibiting faithfulness, then the truth of why Christ saved you is adorned. It's working out in your life. The truth is adorned. You see, God saved us that we'd become like Christ, set apart from sin unto him to do his will for his glory. And the saving gospel is beautified in those who abide in Christ and trust him and obey him in the work relationship. So then, how are you doing at work? We all could say we failed because we sin. But we want to fail less. We want to be obedient to his word. We want to obey. And whether it's any ordered relationship, you may not be working, but there are other ordered relationships. All the principles are the same. Do everything you do hardly unto Christ and not unto men. Do it for his glory. He's faithful. He'll reward you. He'll reward you. Make sure that what you do doesn't cause his name and the truth of salvation in his son to be blasphemed. And if that's happened, confess, be restored, and be determined in Christ to obey him and to walk according to his word so that Christ would be magnified. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this instruction. There's so much here, and yet it's just very simple. We need to do everything for you. We need to do it all unto you and trust you and obey you. Lord, I pray that we would... Order our ears under your word, and we would obey what you say. And that we would submit to you, and thus those you placed over us. And we would do so with the right attitude, that we would be well-pleasing to those uh, who are our bosses on earth, our masters here. And that uh, we would do so heartily unto you and not unto men. Lord, help us to be an example in that which adorns the truth of your Savior, of your Son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Forgive us for failing, Lord God, and may we, may we fear you and reverence you and thus those you've placed in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.